So I think probably top of the list of the myths of, of, of aging is that later life is depressing, right? That we get sad and think of all the words we use when we talk about older people. So sad, grumpy, cranky, crotchety, you know, but actually untrue because human beings follow what's called a U-shaped happiness curve. So we start high in childhood, we fall steadily till we bottom out in middle age, and then we bounce back up again so that the adults around the world that report the highest levels of happiness and life satisfaction are the over 55. Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear conversations that generate one aha moment after another for you. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows enough about yet. It is so well hidden by the negative noise in our media that I'm calling this wave a conspiracy of goodness. And if you're listening to this podcast, it's probably because you are part of that wave. You are probably a remarkably gifted um, doer, helper, um, learner, giver in your own circles. And the guests on this podcast will give you inspiration, joy, and fresh ideas for continuing to build that role in your community and, and, your, and your life. You were absolutely right to hold out hope for humanity and the future. There, there is just so much good going on. It is still an amazing world. So every week, no matter the topic, we will take you on a little journey um, that you will no doubt uh, come away with a few pearls to add to this, this uh, remarkable role you are probably serving in the, with the people in your life. So hello, I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich. I'm founder of the Goodness Exchange. That's the mothership website of this podcast. And there you can have access to all kinds of remarkable positive news, things that should be rising to our newsfeed and being reported, but we just can't get our media to focus on what's right with the world. But we'll do it here. And we're going to start today with an amazing guest, Carl Honore. Carl is the originator of the slow movement, an awareness of being truly present with whatever is going on. His work and advocacy over the years is for a more relaxed way of living that takes in things like the slow cooking movement or slow cities, slow travel, slow medicine, slow walking. I could go on and on. But now he is championing an amazing topic that I think has a possibility to open a, a new world for us all. His insights now about the slow movement has translated into a world of talking about ageism. And, you know, ageism may or may not be a term that you're familiar with, but it's kind of a hidden prejudice or discrimination because of someone's age. He's written a great book called Boulder that takes on this cult of youth. And I am so excited to talk to him about what's possible because I, Carl and I have chatted about his insights on aging. And I tell you, if you're listening to this and you're over 35, you're going to feel like you've got a spring in your step and you've got a whole new way of looking at the process of the passage of time. So welcome, Carl Honore. Thank you, Linda. It's great to be back with you. Oh, I tell you, I um, that I want to first turn people on to this great, um, this great TED talk that Carl did in 2019. It's called "Get Closer to the Good Life: Ditch the Fat, oh, Ditch the Fast Life." And that episode that we recorded an episode about this fast life and slow life is called. It's episode number 114 on the Goodness Exchange. Um, but now this, the, lately, he's done a TED talk, a TEDx called "Why We Should Embrace Aging." 
as an adventure. I am really, really thrilled to, to dive into this. Why should we embrace aging as an adventure, Carl? <laughs> because the alternative is pretty bleak, pretty grim, and pretty pointless, right? <laughs> because yes. let's be honest, we are all aging. Whatever age you are, you're on the same journey. You're Tomorrow, you're going to be a day older. A year from now, you'll be a day older. So living in a society that's drenched in the cult of youth that constantly bombards us with the idea that aging is a form of surrender or a disease or a curse or something to be a punishment even, right? You know, living in that kind of society is, is just inimical to living well uh, because why take against something that is so natural, which is which is growing older, which is aging, which is something that we will, until science fiction comes along and changes all that, we've got to make the most of what we've got, which is a rich, long arc of life. Uh, rather than feeling bad about growing older, to embrace it as a process of opening doors instead of closing them as an adventure. Oh, I tell you, this is um, this is the the quintessential problem, is that we we have sort of a cult around youth. Um, hmm. and, and I love the title of your book, Boulder, because it should be more and more empowering every day when we age, because we are just a little bit smarter every day. We're a little bit, um, more flexible. We're a little bit more determined about, um, following our real passions and not just doing what society wants. Talk about, talk to us about the book and, and what we might find there. Cause I, yeah, I think this uh, is a well, topic so many people. Well, I Think this is a topic that's so universal because as i say we're all on the track somewhere so whether you're 25 35 55 yes. or 95 we're all grappling with the passage of time and if we approach it with a spirit of hope and optimism and openness then that journey whatever decades or years you have left are going to be far more fruitful more, more prosperous more luminous more joyful uh so it's so the, whatever age you are i think you always want to start off changing the chip, right? Changing the mood music so that you think, okay, I don't feel bad about my next birthday, right? You, you Embracing those milestone birthdays instead of mourning them. I think that's a key element of what's going on here. Just something you said there brought to mind a favorite metaphor that I have for, um, for aging. One of, my, one of my favorite quotes is uh, from David Bowie, right? And he said once that aging is an extraordinary process whereby you be, you become the person you always should have been. And I love that idea, because what that says really is that aging is a process of stripping away and getting to the core, getting to the essence, getting to the heart of who you really are. And it reminds me a little bit of that famous line from Michelangelo, who talked about uh, his job as a sculptor was to see to see the angel in the block of stone and free him, right? Freeing the angel from the block of stone. And I think of aging in that way. That's the lens I bring to aging. I think to myself every day, every week, every month, every year, I'm chipping a little way, a little bit more at the stone to reveal who I really am. <clears throat> and that's a thrilling, exhilarating way of approaching your life rather than thinking, well, every day I'm a little bit less, less attractive, less interesting, less creative, less productive, less fun, less... When, when actually none of that is true, uh, but to think it makes it true. That's in some ways, I think the most gruesome aspect of the cult of youth and ageism is that it works like a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
So there's a huge library of research now that shows that if you buy into the cult of youth, if you denigrate aging and worship youth, you age less well. So you're, you increase your chances of suffering from physical and cognitive decline, for developing dementia, and even your chances of dying younger, <laughs> up to seven and a half years younger. So think of that for a moment, that buying into this the myth of the cult of youth, we're leaving up to seven and a half years of life on the table. I mean, that's just mind-blowing, isn't it? So put it this way, ageism or the cult of youth buying into it is the ultimate act of self-harm. And I think it's a problem we can solve. <laughs> Lately, I I've, agree. I've, been <laughs> I've been interviewing people who pop out with that. I interviewed a woman last week, a woman named Debbie Shore, who's um, the co-founder of an organization that has fed 2 billion meals to hungry children. That is so, <laughs> that is so breathtaking, right? And um, and also Christopher, uh, Chris Christoph Gorder um, of Charity Water, they both said that independently. Oh, this is a problem we can solve about the mm -hmm. problem mm -hmm. with water scarcity and the problem with uh, hungry children. I think this is a problem we can solve too, don't you think? I completely think it is. I think we can solve every problem with the right frame of mind and the right spirit, but particularly this one, because we the, the, the peculiar, even unique trait of ageism versus other isms, for instance, like racism or sexism, or, is, is that ageism affects all of us. So we, we all benefit by taking down the ageist industrial complex, right? It's going to be good for all of us because ageism affects people of all ages. It's not just directed at people over 35 or 50 or whatever. People in their 20s can be the targets of ageism and ageist stereotypes that put them in a box and narrow their horizons and options. So we all have skin in this game, right? Which I think makes it even more probable that we will solve the problem. That is such a great way to look at it because how many folks, um, you know, over a certain age look at the Gen Zs or millennials and, and write some story about who they are wholly as a generation? It goes both ways, doesn't it, ageism? Absolutely. I mean, I think that the, the main thrust of ageism is, is aimed against the process of aging itself and therefore people in later life. But there is a flip side, as you say, right? So people take everybody born, you know, before, oh, after 1990, and they put them in a box with labels on it like entitled snowflake. Uh, obsessed with screen. I mean, all these sort of stereotypes right. that come out about inexperienced, unable, you know, all these things which are just no more than stereotypes. I mean, you can find people in their 60s who are snowflakes or uh, self in, or entitled or self indulgent or can't take their eyes off their screens. I mean, this is not determined by the numbers on your birth certificate. And that's what we need to throw off the shackles of that kind of thinking. This idea that somehow your chronological age defines and limits you. That's where the rubber hits the road. If we can take that out of the equation, everything opens up for all of us at every age. You know, um, I think I heard you make a point about this, that there are lots of people doing their, their most important work after they've had a long life full of diverse experiences, right? Exactly. I mean, that's the beauty of, of a long life. And, and that's one of the upsides of this whole story of aging is that we are living today better for longer than ever before, right? This has never been a better time in human history to grow older, right? This is something we should be cracking open the champagne to celebrate 
But when you tell people that, the first thing they think in the cult of youth society we live in is, oh gosh, that means more years of cranky, unhappy, unproductive, uncreative, you know, joint sore old people, you know, and that's that's just ageism run riot, you know. Uh, I, I think you throw that out the window and you say, look, we've got these longer lives. We can do anything at any age, right? I mean, obviously there's some things that you're going to lose along the way and you can't do. So I'm so, I'm somebody who I do a lot of sports. I'm very, I still play a lot of sports. I love, but I'm, I, I'm 55 now. I'm never going to play hockey for Team Canada, right? That's just never going to happen, right? So that's off the table. But that doesn't mean that I can't do other things, you know? And I just actually, I, I play ball hockey here in the UK where I live in London. And I've just been chosen to play for the GB, the Great Britain Masters national team, right? Now that's not the same as Team Canada hockey, right? But it's pretty damn good, right? And I'm over the moon. And I think that's the way to think about it is that wh whatever age you are, you look around at the moment you're in, the, the, the skills and the experience you bring to the table and say, how can I marshal all of this to make the most of this moment? My 55th year, my whatever it is. I'll tell you what, my favorite metaphor for aging these days is gaming. I, I, I'm not at all a gamer, but I like the, the architecture of games. So if you think of me as a 55-year-old, that means I'm at level 55. So during level 55, I'm racing around, gathering treasure, defeating demons and bad guys, and having adventures and doing all the stuff you do in level 55. And occasionally I'll look back and think, you know, God, I remember level 29. That's kind of fun. I remember doing some fun, but I don't want to go back to level 29, right? I want to make the most of level 55. And in fact, there's a part of me that's also thinking, you know what's waiting around the corner for me? Level 56, right? Now, what's happening in level 56? You know, what kind of treasure will I be taking on there? What other challenges will I be able to swing my, my morning sword at or whatever, whatever your, your chosen metaphor is? And I think that's the way, certainly the way I think about aging, but I think that we all should is that you've got this year now or this moment now. Take it by the scruff of the neck and make the most of it. And that will allow you to move on to the next moment, the next year, with a similar spirit, finding things along the way that light you up at every stage. Oh, I tell you, that is that is such a great metaphor. I'm 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 going to be unable to unsee that from here on out. I love that. I can't wait for level fifty six. Right, it is just all that, right? Because that's what you got, what you bring to level 55 and then to level 66 is all of you, all of your experiences, all of your hard lessons learned, all of it. And you couldn't, you couldn't have that when you were back at level 35. That's it. Exactly. I mean, I, I, I was thinking about, you were talking about my book, Boulder, um, which of course is about all these subjects that we're unpacking at the moment. And I was thinking the other day, I wish I had written that book 20 years ago because it would have saved me two decades of being a foot soldier in the cult of youth and feeling bad about my own aging. But of course, the truth is I could never have written it 20 years ago because I wouldn't have had the experience. I, 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 would, I didn't have the understanding. <laughs> I didn't have the, the slings and arrows of 20 years of life in the trenches. Yeah, that's how I was able to write that book. And there's a great quote from um, Maya Angelou who once said, you can't use up creativity. The more you use, the more you have. And I think that's a reminder that we, you know, we don't become less as we grow older, we've got, we become more. We have more nuance, more texture, more layers, more shades, more, more tools, more skills, more light to carry with us. And we have that rucksack of experience on our back that we can take with us. And it allows us to do extraordinary things as we move through our 
later years, which is why you do find people hitting incredible home runs in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is, <laughs> we're just getting started here, folks. I'm going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that creativity that uh, Carl just mentioned. Hey, Dr. Linda here. Did you know that a recent Harvard study found that exposure to just four minutes of good news each day will make you 32% less anxious and 18% more optimistic? Just four minutes. We've all got that much time to devote to our worldview and our sense of flourishing. Yes, if you make a habit of learning about just one piece of remarkably good news each day, you can be the one in your circles with fresh insights, ideas, and a sense of strength. Okay, so that takes care of the problem in our personal lives. But what about our work environments? We need to feel like we come alive there, that we, that we have meaning and purpose there. For companies that want to create optimistic and values-driven work cultures, our content can give you a way to turn aspirational ideas like positivity into a concrete way of being in the workplace. In fact, employee retention and attraction may depend on your company's ability to nurture a tone of innovation, interesting collaborations, and possibility. And most importantly, the Goodness Exchange can meaningfully elevate your company's wellness efforts and benefits packages because your work culture can be offering employees something new, peace of mind and that sense of flourishing I mentioned before, where employees' well-being isn't just a perk, it's the way we care about the individuals in our workplaces. So if you'd like to chat about infusing your culture with a tone of celebration about goodness and progress, we'd love to chat. Contact our CEO, Liesl. Her email address is info at goodnessexchange.com. Thanks. Okay, we're back and we're talking to Carl Honore. His newest book is called Boulder, where he takes on this cult of youth, this notion that that um, as we age, we have to feel bad about it in some way and that um, I, I tell you, Carl has some amazing ideas that we're sharing with you today, no matter your age, because you'll, we will all get there if we're lucky enough to live on, right? Um, Carl is, the, is a highly sought after lecturer and speaker around the world. Um, and, uh, you know, his work has appeared and forgot to mention this in the opening, your work has appeared in things like The Economist and The Observer, The Guardian, Time Magazine, and The National Post. I mean, Carl's not just starting at this. He he <laughs> he has a world of of insight and experience that he's sharing with us, and I want to get right back to that. Okay, so you mentioned Maya Angelou's comments on creativity. There's a kind of a myth um, about like creativity is only for the twenty somethings. Talk to us about that whole world. Well, that's that is a myth with the capital M because it's just so not so not true. I mean, human beings can go on being creative all the way through our lives. And in fact, some forms of creativity depend on two things that only aging can confer, time and experience, right? <laughs> two things you haven't really had a lot of by 23, which is not to say that you can't hit creative home runs in your early 20s, you clearly can. But that doesn't mean that people in their 20s have a monopoly on creativity. It means that there are different kinds of creativity that stretch throughout our lives. And actually certain kinds later in life can be 
even richer because of all that experience we bring to the table, which is why history was studded with examples of people doing triumphantly creative work in later life from Michelangelo to Matisse or Beethoven and Bach. In fact, here in the UK where I live, there's a, an annual prize called the Turner Prize, which goes to visual artists one a year for transcendently creative work. And for most of its history, the Turner Prize had an age cap. So you had to be 50 or under in order to enter. And the assumption was that after 50, you were over the hill, right? You were past your prime, downhill spiral, creative juices all dried up. In 2017, the Turner Prize abolished the age cap and they did it, why? In the words of the chair of the Turner uh, Commission, he said, because an artist can experience a creative breakthrough at any age, at any age, right? You know, three little words to make, you know, make anyone who's worried about being over the hill or past their prime breathe an enormous sigh of relief. Three little words to torpedo the idea that creativity is the monopoly of the young. You know, three little words to say to you, if you feel like you're the wrong side of 50, there is no wrong side of 50. There's just the side that you're on and what you do with it. <laughs> and what you could do with it can be immensely creative, whether you're on the, the other side or this side. And immensely fulfilling and happiness. Ooh, I just got goosebumps. Um, uh, the, talk to us about this U-shaped curve of happiness. I don't think people yes. realize that this is, this is reality. And it, there's some science to this. There is, yeah. I mean, to, this was when I came into this project of writing Boulder. I, I was a card-carrying ageist, and I had bought into all the grim stereotypes. And of course, I think probably top of the list of the myths of, of, of aging is that later life is depressing, right? That we get sad. And think of all the words we use when we talk about older people. So sad, grumpy, cranky, crotchety, you know, but actually untrue because human beings follow what's called a U-shaped happiness curve. So we start high in childhood, we fall steadily till we bottom out in middle age, and then we bounce back up again so that the adults around the world that report the highest levels of happiness and life satisfaction are the over 55s, right? You know, Pete, you remember Pete Townsend from the, uh, the band The Who? He's a, he's a great example. Uh, he wrote what, in, in his 20s, he wrote that song, um, My Generation which had one of the most ageist line in the pop music canon, right? It said, remember, hope I die before I get old. <laughs> Pete Townsend, when he hit his 60s, he turned around and said, you know what? I'm a whole lot happier today than I ever was when I wrote those words, you know, back in my 20s. And, and actually, scientists have found a, a similar U-shaped happiness curve in chimpanzees, bonobos, and orangutans, which suggests that a happiness boost in later life is coded into our primate genes, right? So rather than looking forward to later life and thinking, oh dear, I got to do all my happy stuff now because the, the, you know, the second half is all doom and gloom. Totally wrong. The science is completely against you on that. You're actually looking at a brighter, chirpier, happier future. <laughs> and, and there's one thing, you know, one of the reasons, there are a lot of theories of why we get happier in later life. One of them is this sort of evolutionary biology idea that in the distant past, our ancestors were more likely to flourish as a tribe or a clan if they had happy grandparents, right? Upbeat grandparents. Because if you had a grandparent sitting in the corner of the cave, grumbling constantly about sore knees and the fact that, it, that life was better 10 years ago, you know, that, that's not so good for the survival of the tribe. But if you've got a, you know, a more upbeat uh, grandparent who's seeing the glass half full, 
the tribe is more likely to survive and thrive. So this could be an evolutionary thing as well. People often say, just one more thought on this happiness. Um, people often say, well, what else is going on here in the modern world? And, and I think one reason that we feel happier in later life is that as we get into the second half of our lives, and anyone over the age of 40, I think, will recognize this phenomenon, is that you, you feel less beholden to other people's expectations, less like you have to tiptoe around other people's opinions. I mean, Anne Landers, you remember the, the legendary agony aunt, once said that at 20, we worry about what other people think of us. At 40, we stop worrying about what other people think of us. At 60, we realize they were never thinking of us at all, right? Which I think kind of gets at that sense of, what's the right word, lightness or freedom that comes upon us in the second half of our lives. We feel we feel freed up just to do what, what works for us, what lights us up, rather than feeling we've got to tick other people's boxes. And that's just such... A liberation that that gives you silver wings upon which you can fly aloft in the last decades of life. I mean, there's so much happiness out there. It seems to be a criminal waste to go around buying into this wrong idea that, that aging is sad because it's not. It doesn't have to be. Yeah, and that's um, that's back to this. You know, we're big on the uh, at the conspiracy of goodness and the and the goodness exchange about making sure people realize how much agency they have over their worldview. Like we, you don't have to look at every single negative bit of noise on social media or whatever. Just don't. And, and you have some agency about what comes next. You know, there's a great quote where the future isn't what happens. It's what you create. Talk to yes. us about the self-fulfilling prophecy aspect of this. Yeah. I mean, I think my, my earlier work which I still do plenty of on, on slow movement and so on. My first book in, in um, was called In Praise of Slow, could very easily have been called In Praise of No. Yeah, <laughs> because it's about having, you use the word agency, it's having the courage, the discipline and the imagination to stand up and say, no, this doesn't serve me. This doesn't serve any higher purpose that I ascribe to. This is pointless. It's a waste of my time and everyone else's time and I'm not going to do it. And that's something I think that, we can do at any age, we can step up to the and join team no, but it gets easier as we become more self-confident, more at ease in our own skin, more comfortable with ourselves and who we are in the world. So that's, I think, another one of the benefits of later life. You feel that self-confidence, that freedom to do your own thing, and that allows you to embrace that sort of agency, to say, you know what, the world is the way it is around me, but I have, I've got some scope here to change it. You know, I can even just send out one little ripple, and then someone else sends out a ripple. And a few other people do, and pretty soon we've created a wave, right? And I think that's something to hold on to, that especially in a world that feels enormous, almost infinite with social media, you feel you're getting everything you do and say gets drowned out in a tsunami of other people's similar opinions and pictures and videos and, 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 and tweets, that actually one step, one gesture by one person makes a difference. And it makes a difference not just in your life, but in the lives around you. And I think that is so powerful. That is the cornerstone of our humanity is knowing that we are not alone. No man, no woman is an island. We are all connected. So whatever you do, you do especially do the right thing, it's going to ripple out through other people and then ripple further and become bigger until the whole world changes. And it starts with just that one, that one action, that one step, that one moment of courage yeah. or, 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 you know, just inspired leap. 
<laughs> or what you said earlier, you mentioned those two guests of yours, Debbie Shore and the gentleman yeah, whose name Debbie I can't Shore. remember. Yeah, Christoph Gorder, who, right. Who, who, who both said to themselves, this is a problem that can be solved rather than swallowing the conventional wisdom, which is this is an intractable problem that no one can solve, right? It just sometimes it takes one person to come along and say, one day, uh-uh, the buck is stopping here, my friend, <laughs> and we're going to make some change happen. And I think uh, I, I can't help but just go a little down this path is that it's a kind of about the daily ways we think of ourselves and we put ourselves out there. You know, if all my family hears, I broke my leg a year ago <laughs> in a very horrifying way. And if all my family hears is me complaining, then I'm just the complaining one in their life. But if they hear me with ideas and with an upbeat perspective, despite the broken things that happened after that i mean like we this buying into that self-fulfilling process process instead of you know going down that path and and um reinforcing the stereotypes about aging you know we can live strong and, and just change yeah. our perspective i mean i think i think it's whatever you're grappling with whether it's aging or pace up whatever it is you get back what you put in to the world right so if you put in doom and gloom, if you put in the stuff that's weighing you down, if you, now I'm not saying you, you know, sometimes a problem shared is a problem halved. And of course, it's important to share if you're in a difficult place. But I think we want to avoid that becoming our default setting, you know, as you say, becoming the person that everybody thinks, okay, well, that's John. And all John ever has to say is how bad the world is now and how better it was 30 years ago. You're, you're not going to get a whole lot of joy and light uh, back when you put if that's what you're putting out predominantly in the world so I, th I think yeah it's and in a way this is a very hopeful message isn't it because it means that so much of what's good and what can be good in the world starts here with us individually right everyone listening to this podcast can go out and make one gesture say one thing make one tweak that's going to add a little sun you know a little light to the sun are off the say some things. If people are seeing me looking down and and it looks like I'm writing, I'm trying to keep track of these wonderful things that Carl is reminding us of. So Carl, there's a practical aspect of this that we haven't talked about yet that I think is super important. There's a talent shortage in this world, uh, in business and industry and employment. And and we we can't afford to let all this brain power just sit idle on the shelf. Tell us, talk to us about the talent shortage in the world and how this relates to aging. Totally. I mean, this is one of the great disconnects in economic history, isn't it? We're at a time of an acute talent shortage on one hand. And on the other hand, we have this vast reservoir of untapped talent, in, which is older workers who've been pushed off the, 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 the off-ramp or the exit ramp or, or frozen out because of ageism and the cult of youth and would like to get back in or stay in the workplace, but can't because of all that baggage and all that sort of that wall of stereotypes. So, so the two things obviously need to be brought together. We have part of the solution is staring us in the face. And, and I got to say that I feel, and I'm feeling more and more confident because I feel like this conversation has moved a long way, even in the last six months towards okay. an understanding that the way that companies or the whole labor market was structured up until now has just not been working right it's clearly not working it's 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 malfunctioning we have a talent shortage and we have a whole bunch of underemployed people so the, the next step is to find 
is of course is to change the culture, change the language, change all the social stuff. But as we also need to make some deep changes structurally, right? In how people uh, finance their retirement, uh, the way savings plans are set up. You know, there's some nuts and bolts stuff that has to change as well. But the first step, I think, is always going to be the cultural one where we start. And I see it already. I, I, I started off my answer there saying that I feel more optimistic. It's because I would say in the last, even just six months, there's been a pretty sizable move in the dial in the way companies are approaching older staff, you know, creating programs to uh, either make them feel more welcome if they're in the workplace or to bring them back in if they've left, you know, reverse yes. mentorship, uh, consultancy, all these things that were kind of floating around a little bit disconnected in the ether are starting to be pulled together into a package of, of ideas of how to tackle this this problem of older people feeling unwelcome at work because it's harming again. It harms all of us, right? It harms all of us. And, and it keeps, um, it's like shooting yourself in the foot. I mean, if we don't keep the, keep the people with the institutional knowledge engaged in, in where we're trying to go, we will, we're doomed to make all the mistakes that they already know, um, you know, places we don't have to go. I interviewed recently um, Dr. Jill Tarter, who is the head of the SETI Institute. You might know Jill, her from the movie Contact, where Jodie Foster mm -hmm, played yeah, her. Yeah. yeah. And she's 80. And um, she just retired, just. Uh, it was unbelievable to talk with someone who has the scope of time on this project from the very beginning of radio telescopes to where we're at right now on the edge. Imagine if she were somehow shut out of the scientific world 15 years ago. I, I can't imagine where we'd be. Uh, well, we'd be a Temple lot poorer. We, we, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, you said shooting ourselves in the foot. That is the metaphor. I was, I, I was listening recently to something about um, the financial markets and, and banking and so on, because, of course, this is a time of great upheaval and banks collapsing and so on and a lot of tension. in the And, and some, someone was making the point, and this fits exactly in with what we're saying, which is that banks, because they also are pretty cult of youthy and, and older banker, you know, that tends to be quite a young person's profession. We've now, these banks are mostly run by a generation of people who have never experienced high interest rates, right? So the, so they've just lived in a low to almost zero interest rate environment. They don't have the institutional folk memory of what it means to have 4% interest rates and how to deal with that and how you change the products and how you talk differently to people. And that, you know, that may go some way to explaining the pretty poor decisions that are being made by these masters of the universe, Right because they're all under 40 or 45 or something. And they literally have never worked in a bank when interest rates were anything other than almost negligible. So I think there's a there's an interesting cautionary tale or moral in the story there yes. as well, that we really pay the price when we put out to pasture people who have the long view, who have the institutional memory, who have the experience, because experience is a superpower, right? In any field of work, it's so, so crucial. And yet, we denigrate it. We look down on it because it's connected with being older, which is seen to be a form of failure. Crazy. I'm just insane. <laughs> it's insane. You know who wrote, uh, a mutual friend of ours, Chip Conley, wrote an amazing essay right after the big failure, the crypto failure, a few months ago. And he pointed mm -hmm. out that everyone on the board of this organization, um, I don't keep track of financial news that much. You, you know what I'm talking about, the yeah. The 27-year-old who 
took the whole SB, industry of crypto down. Sam, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Sam, somebody. Okay, so uh, Chip made the most amazing point um, about the fact that this is what you get when everybody's under 35 on a board for that kind of company. Because if there'd been yeah. somebody older, wiser, who'd had a lot of experience, they would have been going, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. And arguably he was that, Chip Con uh, yeah, Chip Conley was the wise elder for the guys who invented Airbnb. So yeah. he's already been there, right? Like um, this, having a dynamic range of experiences and talents and getting burned and uh, and wins all that is just so much a part of success yeah it's i mean so much of solving problems coming up with breakthrough solutions avoiding pitfalls comes down to pattern recognition right? you've you've seen things that were the same before or similar and what is pattern recognition if not experience, right? That's what we're doing every day and every year that we work and are out in the world. We're building up our own personal database of patterns so that when a new pattern comes along or one that's slightly different from an earlier one, we can spot it and think, okay, there's some parallels here. Last time this happened, this last time we did this, it didn't work, but we did that, it kind of did. And you can bring that to the table. But if, if you're dealing with people who've never got, who not got that experience, who don't have enough patterns to compare against in their database, you're heading for trouble, I think, in many, many circumstances. That is such a good point. Because that's what we are, is pattern-seeking machines, our brain, trying to make sense of the world all around us. And the more the more you've lived, the the more patterns you've got to choose from to, you know, make a remark, oh, I've seen this before. <laughs> and it didn't end yeah, well. That's exactly what happens. You see it in another sports metaphor, right? You, you see players come on in their late teens, early 20s. They've got all that kind of incredible explosive speed and dynamism of and then they start to lose that in their late 20s but of course what uh, keeps them going and at the top of their game is that they have built up a database of pattern recognition so their game read is so much better than it was 10 years earlier so that allows them to compensate for the loss of speed so you know eventually that's not even enough in itself and then they retire but it's it's a reminder of the power of pattern recognition and experience you know um do you have, uh, you know, so so once we acknowledge that this is a thing in interviewing and in hiring in um, in the specifications that we put out for um, new people to come into our workforces, um, I, I'm wondering how much of this is happening. I'd love to get your opinion on it. I remember when we all first started talking about neurodiversity. So mm -hmm. um, uh, I I remember seeing that term in a in a piece on the Wall Street Journal many years ago where they were talking about the fact that hiring was designed, it was a big, I, uh, it was the world's largest accounting firm that discovered that their hiring process was excluding people on the autism spectrum because their whole process was sort of like you'd interview somebody to go out to dinner with you. Right. <laughs> and, and that, you know, people on the autism spectrum who might be incredibly good at focused attention and, and autism and I mean, with, with numbers and so forth, we're never going to pass that initial litmus test. And mm -hmm. so they had, it, the, the news was that they designed an entirely new interview process that, um, that left that, oh, you fit in so lovely socially mm -hmm. off the table and just made it about people's skills and their ability um, to add to the team in various ways. Is there a 
is there a place in our system where we're getting tripped up on not accessing all this talent because our our interview system do you think um is creating some kind of bias right from the get-go i completely think that's true and i think that's even more so um as we rely more and more heavily on ai and technology to do the sifting for us right because those tools are run by algorithms and algorithms are run by people and people have biases so you end up with tools that are biased and and obviously each organization will have its own version of recruitment software and so on so that means it's got its own version of um, the original biases the original sin so those things are hardwired into and baked into the system absolutely i think that's a real problem i think also uh just the very nature of technology you know digital technology by its very nature is binary right it's one zero zero series of ones data it it, it has less it's le it doesn't like ambiguity it's less about um shades of gray I, I think we can also lose some of the the complexity as well so the, i think it, it hits to both sides sometimes you can have recruitment software that closes out people like um people in the autism spectrum you described so and and focuses maybe too heavily um, on the kind of social stuff, but then I think other forms of AI can go completely the other way and not appreciate people's really deft social touch in some circumstances. So what every company should be aspiring to is a recruitment arrangement, which is probably a mix of AI and human input that builds the most diverse teams, right? So you have people of all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of neurodivergence backgrounds, racial, ethnic, sexual orientation, and age, especially age, right? Because all the science shows that the diverse teams perform better on every metric. They just do. So that's that's another win for everybody because everybody will be involved if you have diverse teams. So what's not to like? What is not to like? So there's this, there's this, uh, there's this thing that comes with aging um, where you've you've had crushing defeat that turns out best in the long run. You know, like you've got this perspective. You don't you don't follow your emotions over a cliff quite as often because mm -hmm. you've had occasions that something horrifying happened that you thought ruined your future or ruined something. And only to have six months later you or or a year sometime later you know that it turned out to be the very best thing that could possibly have happened and how do you think that factors into something that we can appreciate with aging um just in our own daily lives or in the way we operate in our circles whether it's our working circles or our families or what have you well that's certainly a, a feature of of aging that's something that there's some pretty solid science on is that as people get older we tend to be less prone to catastrophizing. We don't see things in such black and white. You know, we don't fly off the hat. You know, we're less likely to see this as incredible triumph for a terrible failure, right? We we see more shades of gray as we get older, which is what the world is, right? The world is seldom starkly black and white. It's usually a million shades of gray. And so if, as, as we get into the second half of our lives, we get better at seeing the different shades. And also we tend more to focus on the upsides and the down. We're more glass half full than glass half empty. So those are right. useful things to have individually for us. But you, your question, I think, was implying, how does this play out collectively? I think it's it's another argument for mixing up the generations, right? So, you know, yeah. the, 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 you, especially helpful, I think, for younger people. And I wish I'd had this. I, I look back on my career now, and the one thing I regret, and I would definitely do differently now, 
is I would make sure I had mentors, right? Like people who were in my life from early on in my career so that I could have gone to them in those moments when I thought, oh, no, this is the end. The sky is falling in here, right? Or or this, I've hit the most amazing home run and I'm set for life, right? Those moments, those kind of wild swings you get in your 20s, to have somebody who is, who'd already been through it, was in his or her 40s or 50s, and say, you know, I've been there. It's probably not quite as extreme as you think, and it'll be okay. Or, you know, keep your feet on the ground because this may feel like you've reached the stars, but this is just the beginning, you know? So personally, I think I would have tried to, I would, if I had to do it again, I would definitely have men, older mentors around me. So again, coming back to this idea of mixing generations. So wherever we can, whether it's in the workplace or in our social circles, just try to push yourself out into mixed groups, right? So whether it's an older person or, or if you're in your 50s, finding somebody who's, you know, in their 20s that you can help in that direction, but they will be able to help you in different ways with a sort of, you know, they've got a, almost certainly a better sense of sort of new ideas, new fresh perspectives coming up through the culture. There's things that they will bring to the party as well. And, and I, I feel in my own personal life, I because I still play hockey and I'm in my 50s, a lot of my teammates are 20s. In fact, our, our goalie who's just joined us now is really very good. He's 15, right? So he's actually 40 <laughs> years early. And I find it, I love that mix, right? Yes. Because we all, you know, we're brought, we're all bonded together. We're all teammates. We're all band of brothers. We all love hockey, but we all come to at it from a different angle. And I find that so enriching and exhilarating and kind of soothing as well. It just reminds me that there's a, we're all on this great long track and sure I'm here, but maybe, you know, good chance I'll still be here at 60. And, and, and then I think that sort of changes the way my younger colleagues think about their future and stuff. So it's just, everybody comes out winning when we tear down the, the silos between ages and just mingle it all together. Yes, you know, you're you're just reminding me too in your earlier quote how how much um a, a broad diverse of aging of ages in a group um Brent keeps keeps knowledge that is sort of timeless fresh. Mm. Um you brought up Maya Angelou. I can assume that there's a whole bunch of people it, under age 30 who've never heard of Maya Angelou. I I ask people all the time, do you know who Gloria Steinem is? And most don't. Jane Goodall. Yeah. Uh, no one knows who Jane Goodall is anymore. And I'm going, ah. <clears throat> but, um, but what you just said reminds me of, you know, I've got a 20 year old thought leader that I interviewed for the podcast recently. And, you know, he was bringing up Buckminster Fuller quotes. And, you know, this is what happens when we keep, keep a diversity of people that mm -hmm. the, uh, young people are pointing us to things we would never have come across on our own exactly. um, because of our window on the world. And so the other way, right? There's, there's this timeless wisdom that gets transferred, but you need the, you need people at the, the, the long end of life to keep yeah. that going. And it gets, it gets transferred, not in a linear A to B way. It gets transferred in a cyclical way. So you're we you know we in our you know second half we're transferring things back but they're transferring things forward i mean i my children in their early 20s and all the way up i've just you know they've kept my taste in music fresh right you know i discover new bands and new new songwriters and all these things through them which i'm pretty sure i wouldn't have bothered to come across without them right so yeah, yeah there's that kind of renewal and refreshing so you're bring you're keeping present the stuff from the past but you're also watering it 
with new influences and making new connections and new works of art and new ideas out of that. And that's just transcendent, I think. Well, Carl, you're giving us so much to um, think anew about this um, and and celebrate. This is another thing I think our world is, we've gotten so we've gotten so bogged down in the negative noise that we forget, we forget to celebrate things, mm. you know, talk to us about, um, talk, talk to us about a couple of myths. We've hit, you and I on our pre-call talked about these four myths. We've hit two of them, but two that we haven't, that I think are worth celebrating is let's just heave ho this, um, this notion that old people can't learn. That's not true. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have a great way of talking about this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I always say, you know, we, we've all heard the expression, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. But the thing is that that's not even true of dogs. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's certainly not true of human beings. I mean, we can go on learning new things all the way through our lives. We may learn them in different ways, and some things may take us a little longer, but we can still learn them. And often later, we'll learn them with more context, more discipline, more a deeper kind of layer of mastery you know, vocabulary, general knowledge, expertise, those things can go on expanding all the way to the very end. Uh, and that's why the phrase lifelong learning, which of course is a bit of a buzz phrase in the, in the business world, particularly at the moment, is much more than just a buzz phrase. It is actually a, a pillar of, 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 of rethinking and reframing aging because that is the lifeblood of of a life worthy of the name is to carry on learning new things, to find novelty. Novelty keeps us fresh, keeps us fit physically, cognitively, keeps us well, keeps us sharp. And so whenever people say, well, what, what should I do to age well or make the most of my longer life or be bold, right? Grow bolder. I'm always putting in the top three learning, right? Always just try to put yourself out there every day to find some new thing. So I, I will make it a point every day to either, I don't know, visit a website I've never been to before or listen to a podcast from someone, you know, just always trying to get some kind of new thing going on. And it doesn't have to be something that takes four hours. It can sometimes be just listening to a song by a new artist that Spotify has recommended to you. Just some new little thing that widens your horizons, enriches your, your pattern recognition database and, and, and gives more depth, color and texture to your life, right? It brings a bit of freshness to the table. You know, I have to share with folks, um, I, um, lately, uh, through the pandemic, I started noticing how, um, how wonderfully almost everyone could improve my way of thinking. Like, do you remember in the beginning of the pandemic, when there were these people figuring out how to get their hair cut or people, mm -hmm. the, the, yeah. uh, the, the ways we all learned zoom together and made this kind of interaction yeah. natural. I mean, uh, and we got a lot of pearls, like all of a sudden um, people had figured out how to do this or how to do that. And it was always clever and sort of fun. And I started on this little self-examination of, of watching how many times I actually asked people to improve my way of thinking. And I wasn't. <laughs> if it came my way, great. They improved my way of thinking. So uh, for the past two years, I, 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 make a, I make a habit of saying, to my kids or my coworkers or the neighbor, I was thinking about this, but I bet you can improve my way of thinking on that. And everyone always has something to say. Always. I've never yeah. asked anybody, can you improve my way of thinking on this, whatever it is? And they, and they don't have anything to say. And I think that's a part of um, like a, um, aging more gracefully is to remember that 
we've that part of grace um is you know being able to bring something into a room that's full of chaos that's 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 that evens out the the waves and i think mm. uh, uh, recognizing that everybody can improve our way of thinking especially when we're in the presence of somebody who has a long life that's so it's so affirming for everything when you ask the question to an older person they they give you something you it's like a gift and they get validated their life's work gets validated yeah that's lovely that's a lovely practice or gesture to build into your day i think it also makes me think of one other aspect of aging which we haven't touched on which is that again there's pretty good science on this and research that shows that as we get into like past 40 so that's sort of halfway through our lives we start to become less absorbed in our own personal gains like we we there are different words for a jiro transcendence and you know that, that describe this phenomenon that we become a bit more altruistic a bit more we want we want some kind of higher purpose. We want to be of service to other people. We want to give back. That's something that you find across all cultures, all socioeconomic levels. It seems to be a human yearning that comes on us in the second half of life. And I think it's one of the great silver linings of aging is you get less caught up in your own virtue and your own success and your own climbing the greasy pole. And you want to do the stuff that makes life worth living and actually which makes us healthier and happier and more complete. And that is giving back being of service to other people. So that what you were saying there about helping other people think differently, that's a wonderful way to embrace that, that instinct that comes in the second half of our lives is to say, how can I help you reframe the world? How can I help you think differently? And maybe I can help you by sharing a bit of my own experience or reflecting on yours or together we can improve our own thinking, right? So we together we think better and come up with a completely new way of thinking. And I think that that's so exciting. That's thrilling to think of, because that's how everything's going to change is with different thinking, yeah. isn't it? And, and it's going to change yeah. best if we do it together rather than waiting around for one superstar to come out from a room with a perfectly formed solution. <laughs> that's not going to happen, is it? Uh, no. It's going to happen no. bit by bit with people joining hands and saying, how can we do this together better? Improve my way of thinking. It just is a magic sentence. Ask it to your one of your twenty somethings one day, Carl, and I'll tell you. I'm going. To, you know what? I'm. I am going to do that. I. I love. I love that framing and that way of doing it. I'm gonna. I'll. I'll get back to you on how that played out. I'm playing hockey tonight. It's, Maybe I'll try it on the bench. With okay. Someone. Yes. It's unbelievable. I, I. It has changed my life so many uh, hundreds of ways over the scope of time, um, because it, when, especially when I do it across the generations. Um, and, and it can go when uh, we do it in our dental practice. Now we've got 12 employees and we we've been using it the, for a year, this expression, and we've got everybody from 19 to, mm. to Chuck and I, and, um, gosh, I tell you what, everybody always does <laughs> my way of thinking when I stop to ask and the, and both ways, we all have come so much more closer together by using that. I think it's really built bridge the generation gaps. So Carl. Mm -hmm. If this interview had only been like three or four minutes long, like what do you really wish people knew? This mm -hmm. is, you know, um, I have my little rap that I go on about every click you make is a vote and you should tr be really conservative about the things you give your attention to mm -hmm. online. Uh, all of our guests have something that when <laughs> right to the back to the wall, what do you really wish people knew? What do you know would be the most helpful? Well, 
I guess to in connection with the conversation we've just had, I suppose I would say that everything you think you know about aging is wrong. <laughs> that aging is not a downward spiral. That on the contrary, it's an upward surge if you embrace it. That that is a that is one of the best answers I've ever gotten to that question. That is so <laughs> didn't true. last three or four that minutes though. <laughs> no, that's so true. That that's just the bottom line of it. Great. And you know, um, what do you think has to happen in our society to have this notion just break open? That we've got this mm -hmm. huge reservoir of talent and experience out there that we're not tapping into, that we need to reach across generations to figure out the problems we've got facing us. What do you think has to happen next to get that to change? I think I think the only thing that ever changes our minds or the way we are in the world is stories, right? The stories of other people doing things that defy the cult of the moment. So I see two things happening. I, I mean, just recently, Michelle Yeoh, right, famously won an Oscar in her 60s, right, an actress. Would have been unthinkable 20 years ago for that to happen. So the, the dial is moving there. The more role models we see making a mockery of the cult of youth, the easier it becomes for the rest of us to do the same, right? So let's get those stories out there. And I think social media is a really good platform for that. And you do see it every day on social media now. You'll see millions of people around the world uploading videos and photos showing their version of being 40-something, 50-something, 60, 70, 80, 100-something. And those, those versions are completely at odds with the cult of youth idea that aging is a, is a downward slide to dementia, depression, and, 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 and decline, right? That, that they are doing extraordinary things at every age. They are taking aging by the scruff of the neck and hitting home runs, whatever age they are. So I think the more we wallpaper the world with those images and stories, the easier it will be for all of us to age on our own terms and age well. Ah, oh, lovely. Oh, Carl, I can't thank you enough for this lovely interview. And we, we planned it six months ago, and I do agree that things have changed since we, mm -hmm. since we very first spoke yeah. in like, I don't know, November, October. So thank you so much. You know, um, Carl is a part of a growing um, family of thought leaders that we're pulling together at the Goodness Exchange who have uh, fresh ideas and insights that can propel us all forward into a future that we can build together. Like I said, it's, it's not what happens, it's what we create. So I can't thank you enough. Um, Carl, where can people connect with all your ideas? Refresh our memory on the oh, books. Right, I yeah. have to tell people everything that, that Carl and I have spoken about, all the connections that he mentions now, they're gonna be on the Goodness Exchange in, in the form of a beautiful article that we'll write around this podcast episode. So you can go there. You probably won't get it if you listen to the podcast on Spotify or Apple, but go to the Goodness Exchange and you'll find lots more. Carl, what, what can people do next? Sure, I'm very easy to find. You can find all my books, TED Talks, everything on one link, which is Carl Honoré, my name all together, no punctuation, info. So it's all there, one-stop shop, more than you could ever want to know about me and my work. Great. <laughs> all Great. in one place. Great. And Carl's uh, last name is spelled H-O-N-O-R-E. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Carl with a C. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I hope all these connections to goodness and progress will, um, will carry you through your week and you'll start finding all the joy and wonder that Carl and I have been talking about today. Thank you. Thank you, Carl.
Thank you, Linda. It's been a treat. Thanks. You know who made it.